Thank you, Liz. Some of you might know that I'm a, fo a follower of both Manchester United and the England cricket team. Um, so if you're tuned into these things, it's fine if you're not. Um, it's a pretty bleak season for me right now. Um, let me just spell it out for, for a little bit. Um, United haven't won the league in nearly 10 years. Um, each season we're scrabbling around trying to finish fourth or third to qualify for this competition in Europe, which we've not been doing that well in recently anyway. Um, and cricket, we haven't won a game in a long time. We've won one game in our last 17. We've, won, we've lost four series in a row. We're now bottom of the rankings for that form of the game. So it's, it's pretty bleak. And um, knowing sport, it's going to take a long time for those situations to get back to where they have been in, in the past. Um, in my childhood, the 90s and the, and the noughties, Manchester United were winning everything in sight. Cricket, they had a really good period between 2005 2015, I'd say. Uh, since then, it's been pretty mediocre. What's this got to do with Isaiah 44? Well, um, absolutely nothing, apart from the fact that Isaiah 44 describes the exact opposite situation. Um, combined with the end of chapter 43, it describes the journey from despair um, of the sinfulness of Israel to the hope of God's love and renewal to the same people. And it's not uncertain, depending on which transfers we have, how well the players play. Uh, this is certain. And it's happened, and it will happen. So I want to draw out three themes in this passage. Firstly, it is a word of comfort. Secondly, it describes the pouring out of God's Spirit. And thirdly, it tells of the glad response of the people who receive it. So firstly, um, a word of comfort. Let's just quickly look back at the end of chapter 43 to see what a contrast this is. Um, I'll read from verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your, fir your first father sinned. Those I sent to teach you, you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. This is God challenging Israel to look back at their past and ask whether they've been faithful to God. And God's answer is categorically no, that they have not been faithful. And the result, he has consigned Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. That's pretty brutal. So now let's look at the opening of chapter 44. But now listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. If Isaiah was a Netflix or any streaming service series and you were binge watching, it's chapter by chapter. You'd probably be about five solid days in by now. Um, going from 43 to 44, you'd probably be like, is this, is this the right show? Um, you, you, you'd have the previously on Isaiah a little bit where it would, it would tell you about Israel's sin and Jacob being chosen and consigned to a destruction. Sorry, Jacob being consigned to destruction. And you'd see the first few minutes of chapter 44 
And yeah, you, you'd be like, has Netflix malfunctioned or skipped about 10 episodes, switched the series? It really doesn't seem right. Um, but this is the beauty of it. The incredible truth that God is at the same time just um, and he hates sin, but so enormously loving in a way that no other God or idol can be. Now, fatherhood has taught me a little bit about this mix of emotions. As many of you all know, I've got twin boys and then another younger girl. Um, but the twin boys are two and a half. Um, and as uh, much as I don't like to label them, they're now in the terrible twos. Um, uh, and yeah, there's, there's truth in it. There's a lot of rebellion going on. Um, and the feeling of seeing one of them pull the other's hair or shove them even when I've told them over and over again, please don't do this, it's not kind. Um, it does make me feel angry and frustrated when they just keep doing it, keep doing it. Um, yet at the same time, I love them to bits. And I'm sure all the parents in this room will know that feeling. Um, this here, though, is on a much bigger scale. We're talking about a whole nation who have rebelled against God over hundreds of years. And yet God still calls them Jeshurun, which means righteous one. And the word is it's also affectionate. It's like God calling them, you little champion. The contrast is massive. Only God can be so just and angry at sin, yet so loving towards his children. So this is God drawing near to us and addressing us with affection. And the image of fatherhood is also in this passage. This is what the Lord says, he who formed you in the womb. Not just fatherhood, actually, but that of a creator. Take a moment to try and wrap your head around that. He, the Lord who made the universe and will judge all of humanity formed you in the womb. I think that's just incredible when you think about that. It speaks of the intimate love God has towards his people despite their rebellion. And compare that to the idols we've heard Isaiah speak about, which are also present in our lives, which we run to to find comfort and meaning. They don't care about us. They just want more of us and will never pay back true satisfaction. They'll only give us desire for more of themselves. Have you ever had chewits? I think idols are a bit like chewits. <laughs> Stay with me. <laughs> An addictive sweet that will never give us any kind of nutritional value. And when the pack's done, all we've got is an urge for even more and a fistful of rubbish. Or substitute chewits for whatever sweet thing you've got a weakness for. Um, and the word listen here is also important. For the original audience, it is an invitation to personally listen to God as part of a relationship and not rely on rituals and sacrifices to keep him happy. And the appeal to listen applies to us too and not let our habitual acts of service or our set prayers that we say be the end of our interaction with God. In these verses, God is drawing near to us and saying, little guy or little girl, listen to me. And what comes next is so 
worth listening to. These next few verses foretell that God will pour out his spirit on the dry and thirsty lands. These are images of spiritual dryness, of spiritual thirst. Let's think about first what God does in this image. He pours. He doesn't trickle or sprinkle. He pours. This is lavish and almost reckless giving of himself. And not just on one place, a whole land. It speaks of a deluge many times greater than the most violent rainstorm. And rainstorms tend to be localised. And next to this image of pouring, rainstorms feel like a little sprinkle. And the result of this will be that those people, the descendants of Israel, will spring up like grass, like poplar trees. Whilst this is a prophecy about the near future for Israel, it is also for sure a foretaste, a prophecy about the pouring out of the Spirit which is enabled by Jesus' death on the cross. And Isaiah has many more specific prophecies about Jesus himself, so we can be fairly confident that this is also a prophecy of the new covenant in the New Testament. Um, This image refers directly to countries and peoples who don't know God, but who will know God. It is foretelling the rising up of a people who belong to God and who will flourish, springing up like grass in a meadow. Now, the past two years of the pandemic have have been really hard. Um, For many people, it has left them dry and thirsty. And now, just as we come out of that, we have a war in Europe and a cost of living crisis. From Friday, when the number of bills and taxes went up, we're all pretty much all poorer than we were before by an increment not seen before, at least in my lifetime. And when the Ukraine war started, it's pretty much the day of the last COVID rules ending. I thought to myself, this is not turning out to be a pretty nice decade, a very nice decade. Um, And although hard times are hard, Uh, One positive I found is that it forces us to be more dependent on God. And the text here in Isaiah is giving its original readers hope out of the despair of God's judgment on Israel. Maybe today it can give us hope out of the despair of COVID and now war and a cost of living crisis. It's not a hope that God will intervene and stop these things immediately, necessarily. But it is a hope that in something that transcends our circumstances, hope that comes from allowing God to pour out his spirit and blessing on every area of our lives. And it's not just any pouring out, it's a lavish pouring out. The metaphor in verse 4 is really striking, I think. They shall spring up like grass um, and like poplar trees by the flowing stream. Other translations mention different tree species here, but they're they're all impressive and they all make the same point. Leviticus refers to them as a luxurious tree. I don't know if you're into your trees, um, but just in case not, I've got some image of some poplar trees. Um, They're pretty tall and impressive, I think you'll agree. A few little nerdy facts. They can grow up to a height of 186 feet, develop a root system with a diameter of 130 feet. 
what we're talking about, it's not just survival in the desert. It's not just scratchy little cactuses and shrubs. This is long-lasting and magnificent growth from dry, parched ground. And the second part of the comparison states, by flowing streams. This tells us that the comparison is that the growth is only made possible by being close to the source of the water, which in this case is the Spirit of God. Further, if we think about how we know that without that stream, the trees would never grow because they need water, we learn that without God's Spirit, we can do nothing. And maybe you think um, there's dry ground in your life that is t- too dry for God's Spirit, beyond redemption. You'd be wrong. No dry ground in our life cannot be transformed by the Holy Spirit. If you're listening and you feel bone dry, let me say to you, God wants to pour his spirit and blessing onto you. But you need to let him. You need to drop your guard and become vulnerable and admit that you are bone dry and barren and to acknowledge that only the pouring out of God's spirit can rescue you. But all this does beg the question, why? Why is God promising to pour blessing on a people who have been dis- so disobedient to him? Well, the answer isn't actually here in the text. And that tells us really that it's a wonderful mystery, born out of unconditional love with no strings attached. Twice in the first two verses here are the words, whom I have chosen. There were many other nations who God could have chosen from and maybe who would have done a better job at being faithful to him. But he sticks with Israel, imperfect as it is. Jacob, the name Jacob here, is also referring to Israel. If you're not aware who Jacob is, he is one of the founding fathers of Israel. We read about him in Genesis uh, and he is far from perfect. In fact, he's a bit of a scumbag. Um, He deceived his own blind father to get the blessing due to his brother. And just as well, God chooses flawed and imperfect people because that's what we all are. If we really look at our lives and our deeds, if we look deep enough and compare them to God's commands, we will all see that we are broken and flawed people in desperate need of God's life-giving spirit and blessing. And the relief which causes this to flourish in us, if, the above, if those truths are taken to heart in a genuine way, will lead naturally to glad response. Verse 5 is about three people competing, trying to outdo each other to proclaim themselves God's children. It tells us of enthusiastic converts who are unashamed of identifying themselves as one of his children. Also of note in the final part of this passage is the idea that descendants will take the name Israel. Israel is a collective noun for the nation of Israel or God's people. So it's saying that they will declare themselves to be part of a people, God's people. And the implications of this today is that Profession of faith is not only an individual thing, it's not only 
It not only acknowledges our own individual sin and need for God, it is also one and the same thing of a profession to be part of God's people. On the local level, this means, this means being part of a church. I think this puts to death the idea that you can be a lone Christian, um, feeding yourself with online sermons and worship videos. Um, to anyone watching today who this might apply to, can I appeal to you? I know that churches um, are capable of causing great harm um, through abusive and domineering leadership, through moral failure of the leaders, through straight-up false teaching. Um, And these are bad things. I'm not trying to excuse them. Um, And it is okay to flee from these churches if if these things are happening. But the fact remains that God's plan for living as a Christian has been part of a church, but it's being part of a church as its centre. God can heal any past wound that a church might have done to you. You might not forget it, of course, but God can bring restoration. So if you are watching online um, and you live nearby, can I appeal to you? Come on down and we will welcome you. Um, Redeemer's not a perfect church. No church is a perfect church. We're we're made of broken people. But we are a church who strive to live as family, as is included in our identity statement, a gospel-formed family on mission. And for what it's worth, can I reassure you that um, Greg, myself, and some of the other leaders in this church are aware and have taken notice of some of the horror stories in the church recently. I'm thinking of Mars Hill in America, um, more, lo- more in Britain, the Sheffield crowded house, um, and the ongoing scandals coming out of Hillsong. Um, and I would often say to you that we, are, we've been, you know, we, we study these things and we know the causes, the root causes of why these catastrophes happen. And we're, we will be trying to avoid them. I'm not saying something that will never happen in Redeemer, but hopefully we'll be trying to avoid them. But back to the passage. To us today, it lays down the, press, the question pretty plainly. Do we see ourselves in this description? Are we proud to be God's children and publicly state it? Or do we keep it quiet Afraid of what others will think. Do we want other people to know that we're Christians? Now, it's no use for me to stand here and and say to you, be more open about your faith, evangelise more. But what I can do is invite you to ask yourself, if you're not open with others about your faith, how many of the dry and thirsty places have you let God pour his spirit onto? Now, witness, witness to our faith It's not an onerous demand, but it's an incredible privilege. It doesn't have to be attention-grabbing. It's simply our story and what that story says about the reality of Christ and his ability to save us from dry and parched places. I'm not advocating giving gospel tracts to everyone you know. I'm sure some people have been converted in this way in many places and many times. And it's important that non-Christians in our lives first start to know that we are Christians. But in our context, in 21st century Chalton, we believe witness is more, important, is more effective when done through relationships. That's why in our missional communities we seek to do mission with a fairly small group of people. 
so that we can build relationships with these people over long periods of time. And when our story and God's story are intertwined, where we see God working in our lives in the, in the troubles we go through, in the joyful times we have, we can be just honest with people about that and speak about it honestly. It won't need to be something that you need to memorize and get right. We're all the experts of our own lives, right? Um, and that's what could make post-Christian Chalton, the people of post-Christian Chalton, sit up and take notice. To share our faith in such a way to make them say, huh, they're not just parroting a doctrine at me. And, and just by the way, telling people what the gospel is is still important. Um, but going back to Chaltonite's head, what they believe is really part of their lives, part of their experience. And they really believe it. They really feel it. Um, let me just give you a sidebar on the term post-Christian Chalton. Many of us might say that Redeemer is still a church, small church plant. But actually, in terms of the churches in Chalton, we're now on the bigger side. The pastor of Grace Church, Pete Horlock, told me that a friend was preaching at another church in Chalton to, to nine people. And apparently those nine people weren't that interested. That he, might have been, he might as well have been reading the dictionary. And a long-standing Church of England church in Chilton now has a regular congregation of people in the teens. I guess in summary, oh, not yet. Um, this passage is saying to us here in post-pandemic Chilton, and forgive me, I don't really like long sentences, so I hope you can stay with me for this one. Will you surrender to the pouring out of God's Spirit and blessing on your lives so that it transforms it to such an extent that talking to the people God has placed in our lives who don't know God about how God has saved and transformed us comes as naturally as talking about the weather or the, what bars are good on Beach Road. Can we speak about how God has transformed the dry and thirsty places in our lives, which the pandemic exposed and the cost of living crisis will also be exposing can we speak about the fact that our faith is entirely in sync with our experience and that we don't just believe truths about God in our heads, we've also really felt them. And if you're here today listening to this and you, you haven't ever let God pour out his spirit on you, in other words, you would not call yourself a Christian, is this something that appeals to you? Where in your life is dry and thirsty? Where do things of this earth fail to fulfill you? Try to put aside the imperfections of the church you might see in the church and the disaster stories you might have heard of. As I, as I said earlier, there is no place in any human life which is too dry, barren and thirsty for God's spirit to renew and to cause it to flourish like a huge poplar tree in the desert. So this passage is one that speaks of an amazing promise that can transform our lives and our hearts so that we gladly call ourselves children of God.